Welcome to The Theatre, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. The Theatre is an ongoing conversation on surgery and surgical training, featuring practitioners from around the world on discussions ranging from learning and professional development to advances in technology and technique. This is the eighth episode in an ongoing series on the theme of health inequalities, which we will return to throughout the year. It has been developed in collaboration with Melanin Medics, a national UK charity organization focusing on promoting diversity in medicine, widening aspirations, and aiding career progression for the Afro-Caribbean community. Throughout the course of this series, we will explore current inequalities in both patient and professional outcomes, and illustrate the steps that must be taken to ensure equality and fairness for all. Presented by Temidayo Asenrobi, Education Director for Melanin Medics, and Frank Chiniguando, consultant urological surgeon, this episode considers the impact that promoting diversity in leadership can have on the future of surgery. I'm I'm the Director of Academia at Melanin Medics, and I'm joined by Professor Frank Chinengundo. Um, he's the Urology Lead at Bats and Health NHS Trust, Chairman of the Department of Health Prostate Cancer Advisory Group, and Chairman of the Registered Charity, Cancer Black Care. Professor Frank Chinengundo is also an Honorary Senior Clinical Lecturer at the University of London. In this episode, we will dis- demonstrate the potential that diverse leadership can have for the future of surgery. This episode will explore the effects that new generations of leaders can have within surgery and what a diverse future can look like within the college. It's nice to meet you, Prof. Chinengundo, and thanks for joining us today. Um, Thank you very much. Please, could you kindly introduce yourself and what you do? Yes, so my name is... Uh... Professor Frank Chinagwundo, MBE. I'm a consultant urological surgeon at Bart's Health NHS Trust in London. Could you describe what leadership means to you? So um, leadership to me means heading the team, and that means um, setting the direction of travel. It means um, having a vision for how we can improve our, our services to uh, the patients. It includes how to get the best out of all the team members, uh, how to motivate and how to encourage. And importantly, you, you have to lead by example. So if the team members see that you know, you're punctual, you're good at what you do, uh, you're polite, you treat everyone with uh, respect and and dignity uh, so you set the tone for for how things uh, should run then generally speaking people will will follow that lead all right thank you very much um, so you've mentioned that the main goal is to have a vision to improve services and to ensure that you get the best patient care However, some members of the team might have their own agendas or personal goals. How do you incorporate this into, into your leadership style? Um, I think by listening and having uh, one-to-ones with 
the team members, especially those that you are in close communication every every day, and find out what it is that is driving them, what is it they are trying to achieve uh, in their professional careers, and ally that to what the team overall is trying to achieve. So, for so you know, for example, a, a specialist registrar in 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 neurology, their objective is to get uh, good training, pass all the exams, and and become a become a consultant, and that can be readily allied to the overall uh, vision of trying to improve patient care. So, the better their their the better their training, uh, the more interest you show in them then the better care they will they will give to the patient and so it's a win-win and i think the the trick of leadership is to is to bring all those agendas together so everyone is is pointing in the same direction um are there other key qualities and attributes needed for leadership i think um there are several i think there are uh, several um attributes um I think the ability to realize that no one person, including oneself, has the answers to every situation and the value of a team is people should, should be free to to input their their ideas and you as a leader uh, listen to the to the ideas and um, and take on board. And if the ship needs to uh, change direction, then be willing to do so. So I think uh, um, humility is required in, um, in in a leader. I think you have to have um, different styles of leadership according to what it is you are you are, are trying to achieve. Um, I think you have to have the time to do it. I think one of the uh, difficulties often in the NHS is that you find yourself in a, a leadership role, a lead, leadership position, and it's just an, an added extra to your regular clinical clinical duties so i think it's important to have uh, the time to um uh, step back and and reflect and you know so to look up and see what changes may need to be made um ultimately to improve um, patient care so it's interesting that you've mentioned that um when you take up a lead before taking up a leadership role, you should make sure you'll have time for that. And as a foundation doctor myself, I've realized that sometimes um, people die in the role of maybe clinical supervisor or educational supervisor. Sometimes it seems I don't actually have time for um, for the trainees. It seems like um, it's just I don't know if it's like a mandatory requirement for people to hold those roles. And when a supervisor doesn't have time for trainees it might impact the the um, quality of training received by the by the by the junior do you have any advice for maybe senior clinicians on how they can deal with such scenario it's a it's a really it's a really good point and it's been a, a long-standing bone of contention in that uh, when you reach a certain position in the in the in the in the system namely a consultant it's one of those things that's expected of you that you're going to be at least a clinical supervisor, um, if not an educational supervisor. And there's issues in terms of uh, what training 
you receive to uh, in in those roles. I think uh, Health Education England are are taking steps in that direction, in that you have to do some training before you adopt these roles. But of course, uh, the other problem, as you allude to, is is the time that that is given to you, and oftentimes there is no time in your in your in your um in your job plan for that and also the remuneration you know it's like i think a quarter of a pa for, for if you have an educational supervisor basically means that uh you're you're paid one hour per week which is generally inadequate um to do what you have to do so unfortunately a lot of consultants uh, find themselves in the position of this is an additional duty that's effectively they're, they're not being paid to do. And so those who are very conscientious often will do what needs to be done in their own time or perhaps carve time out of the end of a, of a clinic to do it. So I think the, I think the, the service has to recognise that training and educating the trainees is an integral part of 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 the job and it, it has to be recognized as such and i think time time has to be made so you know for example it, it is possible as a, as a consultant to say you know perhaps once every two weeks my clinic will be three hours rather than four hours so and that's uh, extra hour that fourth hour i will spend giving quality time to the needs of, of the trainee. Now, of course, that will have a knock-on effect in terms of, of waiting times uh, and so on, but, but something has to give. Either we're serious about training the next generation or, you know, or we're not. And I think the better that, we, that the training happens, the better ultimately it will be for the NHS. So what you say is is, is common and and it's it's it saddens me that um, um in enough um there's, insuff there's insufficient recognition given in the timetable to to training at the start of this episode we mentioned some of the leadership roles that you've you currently hold and um could you take us through your leadership journey and what were some of the main obstacles and how did you overcome them so, I mean, I, I've been a consultant urologist now for 25 years. At the start of that journey, uh, I was asked to take on a leadership role outside the NHS in, in, the, in the voluntary sector. So I was asked to become a trustee of a charity called Cancer Black Care, which started in 1995. And in 1996, I was asked to become a trustee because I had given some talks on, on prostate cancer. Um, and uh, very quickly, I was asked um, to become chairman of this, of this um, charity in 1998. In fact, I'm still fulfilling that role now. So I found myself in a leadership position, so head of the board of trustees, and also with responsibilities for, for the staff. And responsibilities for governance and for and for HR and for dealing with any uh, issues that arose. And so the challenges were from really, apart from some management training as a, as a, as a 
especially his registra registrar, um, having to ad adapt to a, a completely new sector, i.e. the voluntary sector. And the challenges um, then, and in fact still today, <laughs> are, re are with regards to funding. Uh, because without funding, you can't carry, you can't continue offering your services. And the services that we offer are to anyone with, with cancer, but in, in particular, black and ethnic minority cancer patients, either with counselling or with, um, or with the befriending or with uh, providing cancer information or, or accompanying people to hospitals. Um, so quite a quite a lot of uh, of services. So there's a, certainly a financial challenge. Then there's a, a challenge with inevitably in any organisation issues arise, whether they are interpersonal issues or service issues, and you have to learn how to how to how to deal with them. And it's helpful if you have someone outside the organisation that you can talk to, that you can bounce ideas off um, and and seek advice as to how you might manage. Um, certain situations. Other management has been, you know, became surgical director uh, at um, at Newham, and subsequently uh, was the interim medical director for a few months before our our trusts kind of merged. And you know, one of the challenges I had as being the surgical director was service service issues. You know, so for example, you know, the trainees. You know, would complain they're not getting enough uh, operating time, and you as the surgical director has to, you know, have to try and improve that situation. Or the staff grade and associate specialists would be unhappy about some aspects of their of their, their role, uh, and you know there may be disagreements between the staff grade and associate specialists and the and the, and the consultants in a particular service. And so you as you as the leader, it's it's down to you to take the issues on board, talk to both sides and try and, and chart a way forward. So as everyone is is reasonably happy. Now, a lot of the skills required, you kind of learn on the job. Um, you learn from your experience of working with other other leaders. And um, it's something that you that you you grow into, and I think if you act with integrity and people don't think you're 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 biased towards any one particular group, and people genuinely believe you're trying to uh, chart a way forward through through the problems, then generally people will uh, support you. So so I've had leadership roles both within within the um, organisation, you know, Bart's Health and HS Trust, and outside the organization in, in terms of the voluntary, voluntary sector. And as you get more and more experience and people get to know you, then they ask you to join various um, committees and various organizations. And you do find yourself in those leadership roles. So for example, um, there's an organization called Tackle, which is a national federation of prostate cancer support groups. And so uh, apart from being a trustee of that, um, um, that's a federation. I'm also chairman of, of the clinical advisory group. And so my role is to keep the members together and keep the advisory board uh, up to speed with, with, with what's happening and to canvas opinions. If, for example, we're trying to work out what should our position be on screening for prostate cancer, 
Uh, so as a leader, um, you you have to. I would have to get canvas the opinions of the of the clinical advisory board. Some will be urologists, some some will be GPs, some will be oncologists. So you, you have the canvas opinion, and then pull together the various opinions to come out with the position of the clinical advisory board. Um, in terms, as an example, on whether we should be supporting a national prostate cancer screening program. You know, it seems to me that the more you do and the more you take on and the more people see, the more they want you to <laughs> to get involved in, in the in the leadership position in in the, the particular organizations. And so I've always taken the view that if you can do something, then then you should do it. So you've mentioned some of the obstacles faced, such as um um, difficulty in maybe adjusting to a leadership position outside of the medical or surgical environment, um, gaining funding for some of the roles you've been in, as well as dealing with conflict. And also from what I can gather from what you've said, um, it's being in these positions require a lot of time. So I can imagine it could have an impact on um, having a good work-life balance. So how have you overcome these ob obstacles and still manage to maintain this position still date? Yes, well, you know, it's not been easy. Um, it helps having a, um, a strong and supportive environment outside work. So I'm fortunate enough to have um, uh, my wife, who is a GP, so understands very well the, uh, the medical uh, um, environment. The children, two children, have also been uh, very supportive. And uh, as you say, it's important to, to get this work-life balance uh, right and get your priorities right. And and I think, you know, having children is very good for that because when you when you arrive at home, you know, they're not interested in, in, in whatever challenges you, you, you've had at work. You know, it's whether you're going to, you know, take, take them to the football or take them to the, to the netball or whether you're going to go to the school to see the teachers uh, uh, and so on. So um, one of the things that I, I learned earlier on was what I what I call time, time, time shifting. I'm sure there's a, there's a, a, a better phrase for it. But essentially, uh, what it what it meant is that when I would get home from work, I would devote you know the few hours to 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 family life, and when the children had gone to bed, then I would embark upon the kind of you know the emails and and the letters and the reading and 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 so on. Um, whereas before the family came along, I would do those things in the evening, but. But once you have children, they have to take priority. So yeah, even now, I mean, they're much bigger and much older now. Um, but even to a certain extent, you know, I'll, it'll be between 10 or 10 p.m. and midnight that I will be answering my emails and reading policy documents and responding to this or this or that, because I would probably get 150 emails a day from a whole variety of sources that I have to go through and, and make some sort of sensible sensible uh, response. So I've learned to become very time efficient and many years ago read various books as to how to manage your time effectively. You know, you know things that, 
you know, would appear obvious, but, you know, until I read them, I, you know, I didn't necessarily do them. So, for example, you know, dealing once with a piece of paper that, that comes across your desk or, or, or carving out time that you're going to specifically address, you know, a document that you have to read. Um, so a very efficient time management, um, I would say, um, prioritizing certain things like family life, making sure that unless there's some extreme situation, you're going to be there for all the all the you know school visits and the parents' evenings and the and the sporting activities, and then when the kids are in bed, um, then you then you do what, what what needs to be done. And I must say also making sure you 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 take all your annual leave. And you have very good holidays indeed, mm. <laughs> which I've been fortunate enough to do. So it's a juggling act, you know. It's a it's a juggling act, and you know I haven't mentioned um, uh, private practice that uh, also requires uh, time and attention, and having an extremely good uh, secretary uh, is very helpful in that regard, and also having time for other things that interest you, like medical legal matters. But it is, it's important to be able to take time out and to relax, you know, whether that's by being a season ticket holder at a, at a, you know, at, at West Ham, as I was for several years until the uh, pandemic made it not, not, not worth, not worthwhile doing. But um, it's really important, as you, as you imply, to, uh, to work hard and work hard and, 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 and play hard and be able to switch off and compartmentalize the various activities that you have to do. And I think it takes a very long time to, to try and get it right. And I think one of the difficulties is saying no to things. Um, you want to be helpful, you want to do all, all that you can, but you know, you have to be able to say uh, no, and or perhaps recommend someone else to do whatever it is you're being asked to do that you just don't have have time to do but yes i i keep busy um but i guess i enjoy it um so just to ask from the beginning of your training um to your career as a consultant now what changes have you seen within the college to support trainees from diverse backgrounds um well i can't say that it's something that has uh, particularly st struck me in that um, I mean I would regard myself as coming from a diverse background you know my heritage is uh, is West African although I was you know born and brought up and schooled and everything in the UK but you know I do regard myself as from a diverse background I can't say particularly that I've noticed a big difference in the way the college um, helps persons such as myself or those coming from overseas. I can't see that it's changed particularly in the in the in the past um, uh, twenty five years of of my consultant career. Um, I mean, the things a college has always done in in terms of of, of training and courses uh, uh, and exams and. There's been a lot of developments over the years in terms of uh, how the college communicates with us and, 
you know, the the e-offerings and the bulletin, the journals and so on. But I think that's the generality. That's that's for all. Uh, I'm hard pressed to think as to what initiatives that I've seen that I have benefited from or I'm aware that others have. So, of course, the, you know, the, the various uh, schemes to um, so for overseas doctors, surgeons coming into the UK in the various sponsorship schemes that the, 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 the college would do, um, help with navigating the, uh, the uh, NHS, help with taking exams uh, and, and, and so on. But um, now I'm thinking about it, I can't really say that I've seen a huge change specifically for for those from a diverse background do you think support is needed for people from the diverse background and if you think so what forms of support could be offered well i think i think there is there is a need for for support i think to the to the credits of the uh, of the royal college of surgeons of england and in, and in particular the the current president um, uh, uh, Mortensen, I think to their credits, they have recognised that uh, the college could be doing better. And I think if you look at the the the, the leadership, if you look, if you look at the council, it currently in no way reflects the diversity of of surgeons. And you know the uh, Kennedy report that I read recently, you know, has various, you know, disturbing and uh, upsetting uh, stories from surgeons who have felt unsupported, um, both locally and have not been able to access the support, perhaps that they wished um, from the college. So I think there are various challenges and it's my belief that the, the college is, is uh, up to it. Now, it's not just the Royal College of Surgeons by itself. You know, it's the uh, it's the British Medical Association. It's the uh, GMC. You know, there are um, attainment attainment gaps that uh, have been recognised. So, someone like me, for example, even though born and bred and and been through the, the, the entire system, but others like myself still don't perform as well in um, in post credit postgraduate exams where you cannot say that language is an issue you know, uh, for example and that's right across the the higher edu education education sector there is an, uh, an attainment gap which uh, it's hard to explain other other than there is you know there are other uh, factors that uh, uh, at force so I think there's a lot that the college could be doing to support the trainees uh, from diverse backgrounds. I think getting the, uh, the leadership to reflect more the, the, the membership um, is important. And I think what the college should be doing is, is looking at the, the, the trainees now. I mean, this is a, you know, this is a long-term long, long project. So encouraging the trainees now to be looking at leadership. So for example, um, encouraging the uh, the trainees to join the you know the faculty of medical leadership and management you know as juniors encourage the trainees to perhaps 
look at the National Medical Directors Clinical Fellow Scheme, which is you know setting people up to be the future leaders. Um, so I think when you have a cohort of of um, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm starting with it. I'm starting with the with, with the trainees. I'm, you know, I think you have to start young, and inculcate that. Quite apart from your day job, we do need medical leaders, and the better the medical leaders we have, uh, ultimately, the better where you know the service is able to 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 help the patients. So, I think we need to look at um, encouraging the trainees from diverse backgrounds to be interested in leadership and management. Um, you know, I've kind of picked up a feeling from 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 many that, you know, it's not for them or or they won't get, you know, the leadership roles, they won't become clinical directors, they won't become medical directors and, and so on. If they run for the for the you know for the council, they won't get, you know, sufficient votes or whatever. And and that that puts people off. So I, th I think the college recognizing containment gaps and seeing what can be done about that. I think recognizing that there is a dearth of diversity at at the higher echelons of of, of the college, and taking concrete steps to um, to um, address that. All right. Thank you very much. Um, and just on the same topic of diversity. Um, you are involved in clinical in academia and it's also a common theme there um, there's underrepresentation of ethnic minorities especially in senior levels of academia in, in medicine and surgery um, what why do you think this is the reason why do you think this is happening and what could be done to resolve this as well yeah yes you know i think gradually it's it's uh, it's uh, improving. I think it's very. I mean, in fact, we're talking about surgery, but it's right across the 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 whole academic uh, establishment. Something like, I think it's one percent of professors are are are, are black. Uh, for example, I don't know what the percentage is in 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 medicine or in surgery, but I would suspect it's 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 very few. I think. One of the reasons is that if you're going through the ranks, you don't see people that look like yourself in certain positions. You think, well, you know, it's not for me or it's going to be too difficult to get there. So I think also mentorship is important and being guided is important. And, you know, I've seen over the over the years um, certain um, doctors, certain surgeons be strongly encouraged by the seniors, being given research projects to do, um, taken along to uh, to meetings um, and be very actively engaged in their research activities and help them get get grants and the things that you need if you're trying to build an academic career, you know, from lecturer to senior lecturer to reader to, uh, to a, a professorship. And that kind of mentorship and taking under your wing may not necessarily happen to persons that look like myself. So it's uh, it's a uh, it's a hard it's 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 a hard route and this easier ways of of getting by. 
so I think there is something about um, academic uh, mentorship. There is something about uh, seniors being interested enough and take you un under your wing, even though your background may not necessarily be one that they've had a great deal of experience um, uh, mixing with. So there is there is there is much to be done, and I suspect when you get more let's let's say professors because that's really at the top of the um, ac ac academic tree that um, look like you, then that will that will uh, encourage you, and you in turn when you reach those levels will be able to mentor those that are coming up. So I think things things are changing, but um, the rate of the rate of change uh, is is somewhat slow. Okay, thank you. It's um, interesting that you've mentioned mentoring as a very important um, tool to resolve this underrepresentation. And you've mentioned things that senior clinicians could do and senior academics could do. What advice do you have for trainees as well? Because I think mentoring is a two-way thing. Yes, um, I think the ad advice would be to find someone and ask someone to uh, to act as a mentor or, or, or indeed you know I think it's a good idea to have to have more than more than one mentor uh, you can have a mentor that uh, shares a similar background to you and you can have a mentor a mentor that that uh, is different is is different is, is different to you and I think finding someone who can who is basically interested in you <laughs> and who will who would uh, point you in, in the right in the right direction and uh, who will perhaps you know introduce you to to uh, to others is important and um and i think as, as you say it's it's a two-way thing you know you have to um keep in touch with 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 whoever it is that's 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 mentoring you. So apart from having having meetings at at at, at intervals, you know, it's a it's a very good idea, and I think it's an emotionally intelligent thing to do, to 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 get in touch and say, you know, by the way, I'm you know I'm doing this, or you know, I've got a choice of of going in this direction or that direction, you know, any 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 thoughts as to how I can make those decisions so you know I'm fortunate enough to have various uh, men mentees um, and some currently and some in the past and even those in the past every now and then will you know send me an email or send me a text saying you know by the way I've, I'm now you know ST4 or I've just passed my my FRCS orthopedics and you know on the verge of becoming a consultant so so keeping those links going I think for the long term um, is is useful and I think the hardest thing is, is to find someone that you feel can can act in that in that role someone you think will have the time but more importantly your your best interests at at heart because quite apart from doing the day job, there's lots of other softer things that you have to be um, aware of because these can influence influence your career. So, for example, you know, the current medical students that um, I'm mentoring, 
have suggested that you know they they join their their medical school surgical societies if they're interested in doing, in doing, in doing surgery um join the royal society of medicine as a um which is which is not very not very expensive at, um at all in fact i i, I gifted a medical student recently you know three years membership of the royal society of medicine so there are a lot of these things that you may not necessarily be aware of or think of or recognize the value or how that might help you in the future. That's a mentor who is interested in, in, in your progress and your career can point out to you. So, you know, it's it's great as the as a as a mentor to be able to uh, be a sounding board, uh, uh, offer advice or sense check whatever your mentee is saying and it's very very satisfying indeed when they make progress and they may have a particular challenge that you've helped guide them towards overcoming and it's 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 uh, it's a, a very very good thing to do so yeah it's it works both ways the mentor has to have the interest and and find the time and the mentee has to you know, stay in touch and communicate. What impact do you think having a good level of representation of various ethnic groups would have on patient care and on public health in general? I think I think it would it would have a it would be of of great benefit and great and great value. I mean, it's been it's been shown you know outside outside medicine and it's, and it's the same in in medicine. You get better decisions uh, where you have um, a diversity of people, which leads to a, a diversity of 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 thought. I think in an organisation, you know, if I look at the NHS organisations, you know the the trusts um, where the leadership, the executive, and the uh, and the the governing body are especially in London in no way reflect either the staff or the populations that they that they that they serve um, the staff may have the feeling that that um, they're not recognized or valued as much or they haven't got or you know there's a glass ceiling for them if you if you if you had a board for example that was I mean in London for example that was say a quarter or a half bame, then I think the the decision making for the benefit of the local population is likely to be enhanced. The message that 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 gives out to the staff in that there's no glass ceiling for them, that they can achieve those roles, uh, those those leadership positions, you know, they can become director of nursing, you know, they can become chief financial officer, can become chief executive because the model is there you know the 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 the, the pathway is there it's very difficult to us to aspire to uh, to positions where you don't see yourself reflected um you may feel that that you know you wouldn't be welcome for example in those in those uh, in those in those places so having a diverse um, board
board, whether that's at the Royal College of Surgeons of England, whether that's at the, the various NHS trusts or indeed any other um, academic institution, I think it is is vital for getting the best out of the employees and providing the best services for its for its um, its clients or its patients. And you know, if I ref if I reflect on what's happened with COVID and the disproportionate um, uh, death toll of BAME NHS workers. Um, I suspect that if the boards of the various um, uh, hospitals, trusts, um, you know, NHS England, PHE, I suspect if the boards had been more diverse, you know, perhaps more um, attention might have been paid to some of the um, inequalities in who's on the front line and who's doing what. Uh, which would have led to perhaps different decisions or more equitable decisions. I think there's a great risk where the board bears no re relationship to its to its uh, to its staff or to the population for you know, certain um, views, you know, not to be um, considered at, at the top table, so to speak. So I think having diverse boards is absolutely crucial for the NHS and organisations associated with it moving forward. And I think you know, on that on that on that note, you know, we, you know, the this, the the discussion maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago was there weren't enough women in 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 leadership positions, and there were active measures taken and still are. Uh, in in force to to get uh, more women on in leadership positions and more women on 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 boards of organisations, more women you know the Royal College of Surgeons Council uh, um, and uh, and so on, you know so that was a that was a conscious deliberate effort. Uh, if we, if we if you look at politics for example, I, I remember where there was a lot of discussion about whether you should have female only female only um, interviews for prospective um, MPs. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in the past, both here and in America, about, about quotas and, and, and you know, the Rooney rule, you know, considerations. So um, it is possible if the organisation wishes to, to improve the uh, diversity of its leadership. I think that's strongly to be encouraged and um, I believe that the uh, Royal College of Surgeons of England um, is um, embarking on that on that pathway. So you've mentioned having well the possibility of having a quota system. For, well, from my personal experience, for example, um, when I was interpolating in in at a particular university, one of the students there was like, "Oh, you got in by quota." And I found that quite insulting, um, and I, I because I felt I got in because I deserve it. What do you think would happen, to like um, maybe clinicians or surgeons, um, if a quota system is brought in? Do you think it would stop um, people from actually seeing that people deserve that role, uh, and instead of thinking, oh, they gave it to them because of a quota system? Well, there's different types of quotas. You know, uh, there's there's a very good 
article in a recent British medical journal, um, I think within the last month, written by people, um, a couple of uh, academics from Canada, where they they go into this issue in uh, in, in in great detail as uh, you know different different types of different types of uh, of quotas. So you know I would I would recommend people um, have a look at that. But uh, it's 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 very much not that you are um, that you're not qualified for the for the position and 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 you were you were just kind of you know. Um, given, given, given the position, you know, it, uh, quotas don't work, don't work like that. Um, I think the fastest way of re of redressing kind of inequalities in terms of, uh, you know, representation, whether that is a you know football league manager or it's uh, you know or or, or in academia, is is some sort of um, record recognition that in the in the um, in the diverse group there are very very capable people and capable in individuals that the that the systemic system doesn't allow them to you know to rise to the top. So all 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 that you're doing is is giving them a chance. So for example. Um, I think the English Football League. That's a, that's a championship and below, and various American. I think the the baseball franchises in America. You know they they brought in this uh, this uh, Rooney Rule. Um, so I would I would encourage people to kind of read about the the Rooney Rule and very very variations of that. But but in essence, uh, it, it it says that if you're if you're interviewing for for a particular position. Let's say manager of a championship league team, you 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 have to interview at least one person from a diverse background. Um, it's not saying that that person is going to get the job, you know, you know, far from it. But at least they're in with a chance, as opposed to the current situation where they're not even <laughs> they're not even shortlisted, so that so they have zero chance. So 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 that's that's one type of that's one type of 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 of, of quota. Uh, system is 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 saying from a particular diverse background you should you know you should be represented at that interview you know there's other ways of doing the quotas by saying you know a, a, you know a, a quarter of the of the uh, applicants for a particular position should be from a from a particular um, diverse background and it, and that's what's happened in politics that's what's you know that's why the proportion of of women MPs has increased tremendously over the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. You know, it, it wasn't by accident. It wasn't by a slow process of of evolution. It's because um, there was a recognition that having all male parliamentarians uh, wasn't in the best interest, you know, of the country. And so active steps were taken to to um, ensure that you got um, more, more, more women appointed, and you know, there's, 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 there's no suggestion at all now that you know those women MPs were not, were not up to the job, or were not, or, you know, the fact was, it was that before they weren't, they weren't given the opportunity to be even, you know, on the, on the 
parliamentary prospective candidate shortlist. So I think I think I think you can have you can have quota quota systems. I mean they have to be thought through. Um, you have to of course have reached the appropriate you know standards, whether it's you know whatever that standard is, to be to be appointable. Uh, and that would stop people saying, "Well, you only, you only got in because you were black," you know, and, and uh, trying to denigrate you. So today we've discussed um, um, your your journey through um, leadership, um, some of the obstacles faced, and um, how you overcame them. And also we've discussed um, the face of leadership in in um, in the Royal College of Surgeons, and how we could improve this as well as the importance of mentoring. And um, you've also suggested some solutions such as the quota system. And finally, I would just like to ask, what changes do you hope to see for the college and surgical training in the next five to 10 years? I think um, I would like to, to, to see that the trainees, particularly those from a diverse background, think that the college has the best interest at heart and is doing things to to promote their 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 careers. I would like to see serious consideration given as to as to how the council can look more diverse than it than it currently does. And you know, there's various groups that would be interested in working with the uh, Royal College to see how that how that could be um, um, addressed. And it ma it makes sense to me. Um, and I mean, if you if you if you look at the council, you know, there's a there's a variety of of different specialties represented on the council. So you know, you have the surgeons, you have orthopedics. You know, you don't have a situation, and and no one would deem it desirable to have every single council member, you know, being a urologist. You know, for example. Uh, you wouldn't deem it um, appropriate to have every single member of the council to be male. Um, so I think we're at that stage now, uh, well, have been for quite some time, where we shouldn't deem it acceptable for every college member uh, to be of a particular um, background, and we should be taking steps to to uh, uh, ensure that that's a change. So uh, so in five years' time. You know, I'd like to see far more people that look like myself in, in leadership positions. Thank you very much, um, Prof. Um, Chine Gwendo, for, for, your, uh, for attending this podcast today and for all your insightful answers. And um, we hope the listeners have learned from this and hope to also see changes um, in, in the Royal College of Surgeons and in the society at large in terms of representation um, um, in, um, of leadership um, to, to um, mirror what we see in the society. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Daya, for your uh, insightful questions. <laughs> thank you for listening. This podcast series was developed in collaboration with Melanin Medics with contributions by Ayomide Ayrende, David Falui, William Adeboye, Temidai Awesome Robbie, Mama Interiwa Sejijan, Jada Kene, and Nina Soamimo. Please see the show notes for links to articles referenced in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the theater wherever you get your podcasts, 
For further updates from the college, please visit our website or follow us on social media.